You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KABC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host. And today we've got uh, two guests today uh, joining us from Citizens Climate Lobby, uh, Steve Valk and Jerry Henkel. Uh, welcome, Steve and Jerry. Thanks for being on the show. Thank Thanks you. for having us, Matt. Well, uh, tell us a little bit, Steve, about what Citizens Climate Lobby is and and what uh, its origin story is, and uh, maybe a little bit about your what led you to uh, to this organization. Sure, sure. So, whenever people talk about what's missing to address climate change, inevitably the answer is political will. And to tackle a problem as big as climate change, we need policies at the national level. Uh, so, special interests like the fossil fuel industry have an army of lobbyists in Washington with deep pockets that work to maintain the status quo. So what Citizens Climate Lobby is uh, all about is creating an army of citizen lobbyists who engage their members of Congress to enact effective climate solutions. So our slogan is political will for a livable world. And we had about a dozen chapters, mostly in Southern California back in 2009. Today, we have 453 chapters with tens of thousands of volunteers in the U.S. reaching every congressional district in the country. And we train and support those volunteers to be effective lobbyists. So by being effective, what I mean is taking an approach of appreciation and respect for the people we're lobbying rather than a combative or adversarial approach. And our, our meetings with members of Congress uh, usually start with thanking them for something that they did. And this, this changes the whole tone of a meeting with a member of Congress. Uh, you know, for instance, you know, like a Republican might look at their schedule and say, oh, I've got a meeting with Citizens Climate Lobby. I, I don't know how this is going to go. But then we thank them for something and it just it changes the whole uh, you know, tenor of the meeting. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, 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 it really does. Um, tell me, uh, you said you started off with, was it 12 chapters in Southern California? About, about a dozen or so. It, well, it, it, the, the organization actually started in 2007, all with volunteers. And then in 2009, we actually made our first hire, uh, which was our executive director. And, it, and at two, in 2009, we had about a dozen chapters at, at, at that point. And we just started going uh, on this campaign to start chapters all around the country. We, we actually based our uh, lobbying model on an organization that works on hunger and poverty called Results uh, that has done fantastic work lobbying Congress for programs in the foreign aid budget, for instance, that uh, do child survival and microcredit and, uh, and education and things like that. So they've been very successful. And so the, the guy who founded uh, Citizens Climate Lobby, uh, Marshall Saunders, he was a volunteer with, uh, with results. He saw that the model worked. And uh, just a, a little bit more about his story was that he, actually started a microcredit uh, program down in Mexico. And after a while, he kind of got to seeing that climate change was affecting the people that he was trying to help. And, and that with, with, if he didn't solve climate change, 
all this work that he was doing to, to help them really, I mean, you're, you're seeing it now, you're seeing people in Central and uh, America and, and, and Mexico now migrating North because of what's happening with, uh, with climate change. So he decided, Hey, I need to do something about climate change. And he, uh, and he took the, the model of uh, results, which was very successful and, uh, and, and started his own organization to lobby uh, Congress on the issue of climate change. Because as, as I said, he saw that the thing that was really missing was political will. And, and that's, what, uh, that's what we set out to, uh, to do. And we also take like a, a bipartisan approach to, uh, to solving climate change, because we believe that that's the only way that solutions are really going to uh, endure over time. The Obama administration tried to cut carbon through uh, executive action, the clean power plan. But when Trump got elected, that plan was scrapped. So, so we really, uh, we try as much as we can to, uh, to, to take a bipartisan approach and, and get both sides uh, together. Now, the policy that we've mainly been lobbying for, uh, for, for some time now is called uh, carbon fee and dividend. And I'll let, uh, I'll let Jerry uh, talk a little bit more about, about that policy. Well, Thanks, uh, I was just, I was just going to follow up uh, a little bit on uh, a couple of things that you said. One of them is that the results organization I had uh, worked with back in the 80s when I was in New Orleans. So I'm huh. familiar with the model uh, in terms of writing letters to the congressman. And those, those things are taken more seriously than anything else because mm -hmm. it shows a citizen's really concerned about something. Uh, because most of us don't write letters, uh, mm -hmm. and even even back in the '80s, a letter writing was a lost art, and uh, and it was very effective. And as you said, it was a bipartisan approach, and we talked to both sides of the aisle, and and it was very effective at getting these congressmen to and to uh, support these bills, which did a lot to um, reduce poverty around the uh, the planet so it was effective it it took uh, you know some time to to gain traction but i think it ultimately worked i i noticed on your board that you had quite a quite a, a group of people that were supporting uh from george schultz to james hansen to don Cheadle. um you know george schultz being the former secretary of state under ronald reagan so yes I assume that uh, you know i always had a lot of respect for him as a uh, as somebody who served our country well and with uh, great honor and dignity and i think respected on both sides of the aisle so i think that says a lot about the organization that it would attract somebody of that caliber mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no. George Schultz is—he—he—he he, he was a fantastic uh, man, and and uh, yeah, we we talked to him about this uh, this particular policy, and he said, "Wow, this makes sense to me." And so uh, you know, we said, "Hey, would you like to be on our advisory board?" He said, "Sure." So uh, this was great, and this was even before he got involved with um, the uh, the other organization that, uh, that 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 he started with uh, with James Baker to promote this uh, this policy. Yeah, it's the Climate Leadership Council. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so, Jerry, you were going to jump in and tell us a little bit more about yeah. uh, what you're working on. Yeah. Um, so George Schultz is an economist. And to economists, this is actually a kind of a simple uh, problem and solution in that the source of the problem is that polluting is free. 
And if something is has a cost, bears a cost, and we're seeing that climate change does, but you don't charge anything for that cost, you're going to overuse it. You're going to overuse carbon. So you put a price on carbon. And it's elegant. And that's why economists love it. 28 Nobel Prize winning economists um, have signed a statement in support of this. And in addition, Alan Greenspan, Janet Yalen, and another 3,000 of them. So very popular among economists. You charge for pollution. That way, everybody has a financial incentive to pollute less. Everybody every day. And that's sort of the team that we need to combat climate change at this point. We're a little late in the game. Now, the problem with that though, is that it raises fundamental costs on people. But if you take all that money you've raised and just give it back to households, they continue to have the financial incentive to reduce pollution, but they're made whole. And as we turn out, as it turns out, two thirds of Americans actually do better under a carbon fee and dividend approach. And by that, what I mean is their costs will rise, but the dividend check that they receive from the money will actually be more. They'll come out ahead, especially the poor. And we like that. Well, that's certainly, uh, we don't want to crush people with uh, taxation and that's not good for the economy. It's not good for people who are particularly lower income. So of those two thirds of Americans that are doing better, what What's the distribution in terms of are those all lower income people or some of the people on the highest ends of the spectrum uh, earning uh, getting tax relief by this? Very few, as it turns out. So everybody gets the same dividend, an average dividend, if you will. And it turns out the amount of your footprint, the amount that you're polluting is a function of the amount of stuff you buy. And to no surprise, people with more money buy more stuff. So 96% of the first quintile come out ahead. Something like 20% of the fifth quintile, the wealthiest of Americans, come out ahead. So it's, it's you know, the, the, the lowest three quintiles, lowest 60% on average, uh, come out ahead. And that's not, you know, an intent to redistribute income at all. As George Schultz says, it's simply a matter of charging a more fair price for the products. Well, that, that makes sense. And that even for the highest income people, if they are actually using less in the way of carbon, then they get some benefit too. So everybody's incentivized to use uh, less carbon dioxide. Uh, and so we're all are polluting less. So we're all benefiting if we're rowing in the same direction. So uh, we're at uh, a break time and we'll be back in just one second. You're listening to Unite and Heal America. My two guests, Steve Valk and Jerry Henkel from Citizens Climate Lobby, back in just one minute. Listen to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and we've got uh, two guests from Citizens Climate Lobby, Steve Volk and Jerry Henkel. Um, gentlemen, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about, you had spoken about bipartisan uh, approach that you have. What bipartisan victories have you had so far with the organization? Maybe, Steve, you want to? Sure, sure. 
Yeah. So for the longest time, uh, Republicans and Democrats have been worlds apart when it comes to climate change. And so we, we saw that the first thing that needed to happen was simply to get the two sides talking to each other. And in a setting where there wasn't all this partisan posturing uh, happening, I mean, when the camera lights are on and the microphones are turned on, that's when all the partisanship starts to happen. So about six years ago, one of our volunteers approached a Florida Democrat, Ted Deutsch, about this. And he reached out to a Florida Republican, Carlos Curbelo, and in 2016, they started the House Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus. And our volunteers around the country started asking their representatives to join the caucus. And so within a year, there were 80 members on the caucus with equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats. And then a couple of years later, two senators, Republican Mike Braun and Democrat Chris Coons, decided to start a bipartisan climate solutions caucus in the Senate. And that caucus now has 14 members. Now to, to, to get to the, the victories, um, one piece of legislation that came out of the Senate caucus is the Growing Climate Solutions Act. And that was sponsored by uh, Democrat Debbie Stabenow and Republican Mike Braun. And what this legislation does is it helps farmers and foresters to access carbon credit markets so that they can get paid for the carbon they sequester through climate-friendly farming methods. And this is important because about 10% of the carbon emissions come from agriculture. So this bill will enable farmers to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem. And in, in lobby meetings, our volunteers asked senators to support this bill. And 57 senators, out of 100 senators, 57 ended up co-sponsoring the bill. And in June, it went to the floor in the Senate, and it passed by a vote of 92 to 8 with overwhelming bipartisan support. And now the, the bill is in the House, and uh, we're expecting a vote to come up in the coming weeks. Uh, and there have been a couple of other bills that, uh, that CCL supported this year with bipartisan support. One was the Hope for Homes Act, which provides investments for energy efficiency. And the other one was the SCALE Act to provide investments in carbon capture and storage. Both of these bills uh, became part of the bipartisan infrastructure bill that Congress passed and the president signed last month. So. If, if there's a climate solution that can find common ground between Republicans and Democrats, we'll throw our support behind it and help move it through Congress. Well, that's great to hear. And, and uh, they need all the help they can get to, to, uh, to move in that direction. And, and uh, it, I, I applaud your efforts on that front. Uh, in terms of the, uh, the Growing Climate Solutions Act, What's the scope of it? Uh, how many people is it going to affect? How many farmers or how many, uh, you know, what, what's the scope of it? Jerry, did, uh, do you want to, uh, I, I mean, I, I know a little bit about it, but Jerry, do you, do you know enough about it that you'd like to get into that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's most farmers, most all farmers will benefit from this. Most, you know, one of the things that we're fundamentally about is, trying to give a financial incentive to do the right thing. 
long term, we're going to head in the right direction if we do that. And this act does exactly that. So uh, most all farmers, I'm not sure of any farmers that wouldn't benefit from that as long as they can begin uh, practices uh, that can be established that do sequester carbon. Right. Okay. What uh, what other uh, you know pieces of legislation are you working on at the national level and and maybe things at the local level that uh, are particularly salient uh, that uh, you're putting your focus on? <laughs> um, well, the the ones that I just mentioned uh, beyond beyond that, uh, we've really kind of been keying in on the uh, on, on the carbon price because that's that's the heaviest lift it, it, it really is yeah where do where do you stand or where do we stand as a, as a country in in terms of getting support for that for that tax the carbon tax essentially i know so, you, you guys prefer not to call it a tax but uh you know. it's okay it's it, you got to call it what it is senator whitehouse speaking to bloomberg news about 10 days ago said you know, we're looking at in Senate finance, we're looking at a carbon tax in which most of the funds are returned to households, a carbon fee and dividend approach. So I've got 49 votes in the Senate and all I need for reconciliation is 50. I've been assured it will pass in the House and that if it gets to the president's desk, he will sign it. So we've made enormous headway. We're one vote short we're holding out hope that we can get that vote between now and the time that reconciliation is voted on. We're doing all we can. I think we've um, sent something like 300,000 communications to the House and Senate over the past month in support of carbon pricing. Um, maybe we'll be back in a couple months and let you know how it turned out. And so, the, 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 the reason that this has gotten as far as it has in, in the Senate right now is because of the support that we've been building in, in Congress for, uh, for many years. Uh, for instance, uh, in, in the House, there's a piece of legislation uh, called the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act that was introduced by, by Congressman Deutsch. And we, primarily because of our lobbying efforts, there are now 90 members of the House who have signed on as, as a sponsor or co-sponsor uh, to that bill. So it, it has this enormous uh, support in the House from, from both moderate and progressive uh, Democrats. And, uh, and in the Senate, uh, Congressman, Sh I mean, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse introduced the Save Our Future Act. And uh, Again, it's 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 a similar bill. Uh, it um, it takes some of the the, the revenue uh, that might be generated for that, and it it does things like help out, uh, you know, like coal communities to uh, to transition off of fossil fuels. Most of the money would be used to uh, to pay back to households, uh, as as Jerry was talking about uh, with with the carbon fee and dividend concept in, in order to, to, to make sure that people aren't bearing a, a financial burden on, on this transition. So you have these two pieces of legislation that have been garnering lots of support in Congress, uh, because not, not just because of the, the meetings that we have with members of Congress, but 
Our volunteers have been writing letters to the editor. Uh, they've been publishing op-ed. They've been meeting with editorial boards to, uh, to get endorsements uh, for this kind of policy. And, uh, you know, so it, it's, it's not just the meetings. It, it's building support in the communities and, and uh, you know, letting members of Congress know, hey, there is support for this in your district and in your state. To, uh, to go this way, particularly, and, and it'll be popular if you're giving money, if you put money in people's pockets, uh, people are gonna, people are going to say, hey, yeah, I'm all for that. And once, once they start getting those checks, that's a policy that's going to be very difficult for anybody to undo. It, it really will be. Now, uh, you've got 49 votes in the Senate for that uh, proposal that you were just discussing on the carbon tax. Is uh, Joe Manchin the uh, the X factor to get to fifty votes? Uh, ding ding ding! <laughs> excellent guess, Matt. <laughs> so, yes. uh, where are you at in terms of persuading Senator Manchin to uh, to swing his vote in that direction? He's he's getting uh, he's having a lot of conversations with his colleagues uh, in, in in the Senate right now. Let's 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 put it that way. Um, he has not said no. I mean, um, there's, there's a lot of other things where he has said, no, I'm not going to go along with this, uh, you, know, uh, you know, like a methane fee and, 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 and some other things to, to uh, he, he's even uh, against uh, subsidies for uh, union made electrical, electric vehicles, but he has not outright said, no, I will not support a carbon tax. So it's still on the table. It's it's still very very iffy, but um, but one of the one of the arguments I, I I think that might be persuasive with him is the fact that he supports carbon uh, capture and storage because he sees that as a way that uh, utilities can continue to use coal, which would keep coal jobs. And the thing about putting a price on carbon is that. Carbon capture is a very expensive process, and a price on carbon is what would actually make that technology economically viable. So that that might be one of the things you know that that could get him to come around on this. But it, again, it's it's all up to Joe, and uh, believe me, he has he's getting a lot of input from people on 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 this. Let's let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, uh, that it's fascinating, and. I guess another factor that might he might consider is that I would imagine the population in West Virginia may be net beneficiaries of a carbon kind of refund or dividend that would be paid to lower income people. And my understanding is West Virginia has uh, a fairly substantial uh, population that lives uh, at the lower in income spectrum. So they would benefit by this. But uh, I'd like to talk to you about the carbon capture ideas and uh, potential solutions after the break. You're listening to, to uh, KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host of Unite and Heal America, and we'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern. And uh, going back to Steve Valk and Jerry Hinkle, uh, Jerry, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about why um, it's probably more effective to have the tax on carbon than to give a tax credit, say, for storing or, or carbon capture at this moment in time, uh, given 
the nature of carbon capture technology being somewhat in its infancy. Yes, thanks, Matt. Happy to. Um, so economists believe that the right way to do this is to, you've got a cost out there in terms of climate change, and you simply internalize that cost in the market. You charge for polluting. But politicians strongly prefer that. That's what's called a stick. Politicians, Joe Manchin in particular has discussed this, prefer carrots. We want to pay you to do the right thing as opposed to charge you for doing the wrong thing. Not as economically efficient, but you get more votes that way. Completely understandable. So one of the, in the SCALE Act, for example, is um, legislation that will pay you to bury uh, carbon dioxide. So you can use fossil fuels. The fossil fuel industry is really interested in this and wants to support it because they could continue to use coal, oil for generating power and, and not pollute by burying the emissions. Um, the technology is in its infancy, it's young. The question as to at what scale it could reduce emissions and the all important one is how much, at what cost? Is that the cheapest way to reduce emissions? Is a question mark. The best way to get to the cheapest way to reduce emissions is to use a carbon price, charge for polluting, and then let the market, let individuals every day figure out how best to reduce emissions. So carbon capture and storage is very interesting to the fossil fuel industry. It's a carrot and politicians love carrots, so that's a bit more in favor now. Yeah, I, I saw a recent article about uh, there being a tremendous storage potential, say in North Dakota, we could store just a tremendous amount, trillions of tons of, of carbon in whatever geological formations exist in North Dakota, though it hasn't been proven and, and we don't have a, a price upon which it can be stored, or at least to my knowledge, I didn't see one. Um, so we've, we kind of have to do something more quickly, in my opinion, rather than wait for this unproven technology to, to take hold. Uh, so given that we're, we're dealing with uh, a timeline that, um, is a bit unforgiving. We, we can't continue to pollute and wait for carbon capture to kick in. If we could, well, then that would be great. We can we could work on carbon tech capture technology at our leisure, but uh, given that we don't really have that uh, going on, we've, we've got to do something that will have an immediate result, which I, I, I agree with you. My undergraduate degree was in economics, so I, I can relate to... Uh, having incentivizing the market, giving, giving individuals and companies the incentive to do the right thing and, and they'll figure out how to do it. Yeah, I, I think it's a great point, Matt. A carbon price is gonna work right away. It's gonna raise prices immediately. It's okay to give some money towards these technologies that are as yet unproven, especially if they can make a huge difference. Um, but you don't want to bank on them. You don't want to rely on them. You don't want to be in a lot of trouble if they don't produce the emission reductions that you're hoping for. Yeah, right. I mean, we can work on them simultaneously, and I, I fully support um, 
kind of having a Manhattan project on maybe the top three to five important uh, technologies that would reduce pollution, whether it's carbon capture, hydrogen, um, and other things that would would uh, solve these problems, we should be investing heavily into, just like we invested into the Manhattan Project to to get a, a, an immediate result. Agreed. And let me add something, Matt. Um, if pollution becomes expensive, consumers will look to reduce their footprint every day. Producers, firms will, but in addition, innovators. Now the best minds are going to be directed towards creating the low carbon technologies that we know must be our future. Why? Because it pays. We do. We, we follow the money in this country. If it's, if it's going to make us a buck, we're going after it. And, and that's what the beauty of a carbon price is. It aligns financial incentives with doing the right thing, with doing the thing which we know is necessary to preserve our future for our kids. Well, and, and if you if you have a, a carbon price that goes up predictably, it will have an impact right away because what's what's going to happen is you're going to have all these big industries and, and, and utilities are thinking about, OK, what are the infrastructure investments that we're going to make, you know, that are going to see us through for the next 30 years or so? Well, if, if they see that the price on carbon is going to be $100 a ton within 10 years or so, it becomes a no-brainer for them to, to say, oh, okay, let's, let's put our money in, in wind and solar because that's, we'll, we'll make more money that way than we will if, if we're still dealing with, uh, with coal and oil and, and gas and, and, and so forth. So, so the incentive uh, kicks in immediately there with, with, with the price on carbon, particularly for, uh, for, for companies that, that are thinking, okay, where, where do we want to put our money right now? Well, the elegance of it makes a lot of sense because it's a very simple tax and so that uh, you don't have to go around and, and micromanage uh, a thousand different industries. You, you set one bar for everybody. Everybody has to meet that bar and, uh, and then it makes it clear how you need to incentivize. You, you, the business has to react to a, a very clear directive versus uh, say micromanaging by changing directions for a hundred different industries. But let's, uh, let's kind of uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about the carbon border adjustment uh, model that the European Union has uh, been propounding as its, its next step. And it's something that I talked about when I was uh, running for president uh, back a few years ago. And I picked it up from, from reading about the environment. And I thought that it made a lot of sense and essentially uh, somewhat similar to the carbon tax that you guys are proposing. So maybe, uh, uh, Steve, if you want to take the first shot at it. Uh, sure. So you mentioned Europe uh, and, and the European Union. Right now, they their carbon price has really kind of skyrocketed lately. It was very low for a number of years, but now it's up at about seventy eight euros uh, per ton of of, of CO two, which in uh, U.S. dollars I think is about eighty five dollars or, or or something like that. So the price is very high, and. What's happening is that their industries, particularly their, their carbon intensive industries, you know, steel and cement and, 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 and things like that, 
they're kind of screaming at them and saying, hey, look, if, if this carbon price is going to be so high and we're going to be paying it, then uh, what's going to happen is we're going to get hammered by foreign competitors that don't have to pay this fee. So what they're, what they're saying then is, is that, uh, okay, you know, the, the European Union says, okay, I hear you. We're going to protect you by imposing this carbon border adjustment mechanism. And so that, what that means is, is that when uh, these companies are exporting to Europe, if they're not, uh, if they don't have the same costs as, uh, as, as the European companies do, the Europe will charge them, assess a fee to them that will level the playing field. For, for their manufacturers. And, and what, uh, what's going to happen with that is, uh, you know, it will prevent, number one, uh, companies from abandoning Europe and, you know, who knows, maybe even the United States by going to other countries uh, that don't have uh, carbon pricing or something like that. Uh, but it also provides the incentive for these other countries to impose their own carbon tax. Uh, so if You've got companies that are paying money to Europe. You know, you know, some other country is going to say, well, our company shouldn't be giving money to Europe. They should be giving money to us. So let's, let's implement a, a carbon tax. And I think the, the Russians are already kind of talking about that. I, that's one of the things that I thought was the beauty of the policy and why the United States should enact it as well, is that it levels the playing field for our industry so that if our companies are meeting more strict environmental standards that other company, un, other countries and other companies that are operating in other areas of the world should have to uh, kind of meet that same standard, that they shouldn't be allowed to pollute willy-nilly and then sell their products in the U.S. Uh, without kind of meeting the U.S. manufacturers on the same playing field. So I think it's it's a really elegant way to enforce kind of a level playing field around the world to encourage all companies in all countries to be less polluting. And if, and if there's a company in, you know, India that produces, uh, produces uh, the product for less in, in pollution than we do, then more power to them. You know, it, that's good. I mean, it's, it's bringing the level produce, pollution down for everybody. And, and then we'll probably follow that model. And then the reverse of that, if there's a company in China that's uh, making the product for 10 times the amount of pollution as an American company, then they shouldn't just be able to import it without any kind of tax on them for uh, essentially undercutting an American company with a a heavily polluted piece of equipment. Absolutely. So um, we're going to take a break now. Uh, you're listening to KBC 790. This is Matt Matter, your host of Unite and Heal America, and we'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Matter, your host, and... Our guest again, Steve Valk and Jerry Hinkle of Citizens Climate Lobby. And I uh, wanted to talk to Jerry a little bit about uh, that European model and uh, how it is being 
uh, how it affects other countries that are heavier polluting, such as India or China. Yeah, it's clear from the response to the announcement that the carbon the carbon border adjustment mechanism will really motivate these uh, export dependent countries like China, India, Russia to put on a carbon tax of their own. And, and China's very much got the structure in place to that. Russia is talking about developing one. And the reason is in Europe's design, they're charging the exporting country for their pollution, the amount that they pollute to produce the steel. And it turns out that China is very coal dependent and they're three times more carbon intensive than Europe is. Russia and India are closer to four times more carbon intensive. Well, this border adjustment is going to raise their costs far more than the European carbon tax does, right? Because Europe's relatively clean. Well, guess what? So is the U.S. If the U.S. joins this, you put on the carbon price, then the corresponding carbon border adjustment mechanism, these industries will see a significant boost because they're now more competitive relative to China, Russia, India, Mexico, even to a small degree, Canada. We are cleaner than that. Well, let, let me ask you, uh, is there a mechanism that prevents, say, China or Russia from cheating on their own taxation of their companies? Uh, they might say, have something on the books saying, hey, we're, we're going to charge a carbon tax, but they don't really do it or something to that effect. Yeah. yeah, it's a great question. I imagine it's on a lot of people's minds. My general understanding is that type of question is very much on the minds of Republicans in Congress. And I will tell you this, we are once bitten. Okay, we have had international climate structures in the past that have been gained, okay? And we're, I'm certain that we don't wanna go down that road again. I'm certain that these you know, countries like Europe, Canada, America, Japan, that are looking at these uh, carbon border adjustment mechanisms, they don't want to go through this and have it not be effective. So I think we're gonna be looking very closely. Is that a promise that will prevent it completely? No. but. You know, that is a road that will, you know, there will be heightened um, scrutiny of the processes to make sure that it's working. Yeah, and, and certainly we do have a, a number of mechanisms. The world is more transparent. We lost a lot of privacy, but uh, that's probably good for monitoring, too. So we were able to monitor things like that a lot more carefully than maybe in the past. Uh let me ask you, in terms of the effectiveness of a carbon tax, in terms of reducing emissions, is it actually going to be effective? And, and what's, the, what's the evidence that uh, if we do this, we're actually going to see a positive result and, and get to net zero uh, faster than using other mechanisms? Yeah, great question. Um, it's pretty intuitive that when the price of something goes up, we buy less of it. This is the plan with respect to cigarette taxes. Cigarette smoking was a problem. The healthcare costs were outrageous. We made cigarettes far more expensive and their use went down significantly. There were other 
things involved like a marketing campaign. So historically, currently all developed countries except the US and Australia have carbon prices on uh, products. Okay, in 142 countries, a historic study was done over decades. And in fact, carbon pricing was effective in reducing emissions specifically for every one euro carbon price emissions were reduced 0.3%. So you can look at um, Europe's cost of about 60 euro. Well, that's a pretty substantial reduction in um, carbon emissions. Now, projections going forward, everybody's on board with the carbon price. The World Bank says 20% of global carbon emissions have a price on them. At this point, we need to increase coverage. We need to increase the price. The UN is saying roughly a global carbon price of $75 a ton will get us on the path to net zero by 2050. And the IMF is urging a global carbon price minimum or floor to be enacted by um, all major emitters. So, so how are we gonna- We're clear how to do this. We, we, we know how to get there. And as Steve said at the beginning, what's missing is the political will, and we've made enormous progress. Give us a little bit of push, folks. That's why we're on the call, I think. <laughs> Please, Matt, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, well, why don't we follow up with that is how uh, how can people help out in this uh, in this effort and what uh, what can they do to join your organization or other organizations to help put uh, you know, this, these issues front and center in our legislators' minds? Well, first thing, uh, go ahead and look us up uh, on, on the internet. Uh, it's citizensclimatelobby.org, one word. And, uh, you know, you'll, you can just kind of go through the website there a little bit and see what we're, see what we're all about. Uh, and, uh, and then if you join CCL, we'll, automatically send you uh, an email that will in, you know, put you into a, a chapter that's near you. In all likelihood, with 453 chapters, there's going to be one you know, within a, a short drive of wherever you live in, in, in the country. So we'll connect you uh, with a group. Uh, and, uh, and there's you know, trainings that we have to, uh, to teach people how to be effective lobbyists to uh, to learn about policies and 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 so forth so there's a lot of things that that citizens can do they can they can meet with members of congress they can write to their uh to their members of congress they can get media published they can do presentations in their community uh it, it's it, it's all about pushing the policy forward whether whether it's uh, in in the public sphere or with uh, with with members of Congress, and so uh, yeah, we're we're happy to have people come and check us out, and uh, and and <laughs> I do have to mention that we are in the middle of our our year end uh, fundraising drive. So if you want to contribute, you can contribute uh, as, as as well. Uh, the, you know, we have uh, an excellent staff that supports these volunteers 
in, in, in training them and giving them the tools that they need to, uh, to, to succeed. So, uh, so that would be step one is just look, look us up on, on, on the website and then, uh, you know, give us your name and your, and, and your email and, and we'll get you going. Well, that sounds like a good, a good way to get started. Uh, Jerry, you were going to say something? Yeah. Um, we're a little different in that we're completely nonpartisan and we take a very appreciative, respectful approach. And that may not be for everybody. Um, but I would urge everyone, look us up, but look others up too. Have your voice heard. One of the things CCL has shown is it's making a difference. We are moving the needle. We are up against strong opposition. We need every voice to, to sing from the rafters on this one. So if it's not with us, there's other fabulous organization out there, but have your voice heard. Well, that's certainly what uh, this show is all about, is to say to people, you've got to get involved. All of us do. And I think uh, many of us have kind of outsourced uh, our responsibilities, saying, oh, let somebody else take care of it. And uh, certainly in more recent years, I've wanted to get more involved myself because I believe that, hey, it's our duty as citizens uh, of this great country to be engaged and to uh, play our part in, in uh, moving the policies that are most important to our country uh, forward. And, and uh, our politicians can't kind of do it alone. So rather than saying, hey, uh, just yelling at them for not doing what we want, rather engaging with them to say, hey, let's help you do the right thing here. We, uh, we're, part, we're partners in this process as citizens. So um, I uh, encourage everybody who's listening to go out there and get, get involved in this. And uh, certainly the work that you are doing at Citizens Climate Lobby is great work. And I appreciate that, it's, that it isn't partisan, that it is based upon science and reason. And these are the things that should be driving our, our environmental policies not uh, hype and emotional appeals. It's, uh, it's uh, based upon science. I mean, you've got James Hansen, who was a former head of NASA, a great scientist on your board. And I assume uh, you know, he wouldn't uh, stick his neck out there and, and associate with a group that he didn't feel strongly uh, aligned with. So uh, I appreciate uh, the good work that you're doing. And I encourage everybody to uh, check out your your website and hopefully engage with you. Um, I've also enjoyed having both of you on the show and hopefully, you know, we can have you back uh, sometime uh, after you get the uh, carbon tax across the finish line and uh, we can celebrate the victory and talk about uh, what the next steps are going forward. Absolutely. Uh, happy to come back when that happens. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Matt, thanks so much for having us. Really appreciate it. Well, it's been great having you both, uh, Jerry and Steve, on the show. You've been listening to uh, Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Madden signing off, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. 